Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeremy Perigo, and in this podcast, I bring in guest theologians, scholars, musicians, Christian leaders, and together we attempt to bridge faith and ministry praxis. Worship Theology is a podcast to fuel and nurture vital discussions on worship, music, and theology. So we're so glad that you've joined us as we think deeply about Christian worship. Today, I chat with Dr. Nathan Myrick, who currently serves as Assistant Professor of Church Music at Mercer University. Nate's an ethnomusicologist and a theological ethicist. The major focus of our podcast today is his recent book, Music for Others, Care, Justice, and Relational Ethics in Church Music. You're, yeah, you're a professor. You've written a new book. Um, and I'd love, before we kind of d- dive into your book, like what initially got you into kind of playing music in the church or even in Christian context? Like what connected you to music or worship or yeah. kind of Christian music? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, and thanks for being here. <laughs> um, yeah, we're live at Mercer, right? right? here we are. Yeah. Look at us. What got me into it? it? I mean, on the one hand, it's just that really superficial, well, I grew up a fundamentalist evangelical Christian and I had my favorite bands, I mean, were Nirvana and Green Day and Offspring. And so I just started playing Christian rock music. That was yeah. just kind of, that's just what I did. Um, my parents also weren't thrilled about the, my choice of favorite bands when I was, you know, in early teen years or whatever. And so I, I was encouraged to, to check out the Christian alternatives to these artists. And so I did. And that became a major part of my growing up was being a part of those scenes. And what, what were your parents' concerns? I, I wonder if they're similar to my parents they, they like probably about, were. about some of those bands. I mean, the concern was uh, just, just that there was influence of negativity and uh, bad attitudes. But also, I think there was some fear of the Satan, yeah. you know, the backmasking and like yeah. the Hell's Bells documentaries and, you so, know, all those so things. So maybe, like, is it some of it the like the lifestyle, the lyrical content, the culture that surrounds kind of rock culture at that time. I would say yeah. certainly. And, and I, you know, now looking back at it and looking at Nirvana's public presentations and their outspoken support of, say, feminism or yeah. LGBTQ affirmations or these kinds of things, yeah. my parents were, of course, upset at that. That did not jive with their worldview or their perspectives. Yeah. So so I can see that. I mean, the the real reason why that, Wow. I, okay. The real the real reason why I wanted to be a part of that music and maybe gravitated towards those attitudes was that my mom had had serious health issues when I was eight and had had to spend some time in the hospital and uh, had a nervous breakdown and that was a big that was a huge source of trauma for an eight year old you know because your mom is kind of like the thing <laughs> and then all of a sudden not and and that was so I started getting into Nirvana when I was nine like it was right away you know after that i found this music that was able to encapsulate something that i was feeling and give me a place to hold those feelings and thoughts and attitudes and whatever else and of course as a nine-year-old i can't articulate that i'm not even sure as an almost 40 year old i can articulate that that you know um but but that's definitely the uh the the thing that got me into it was having those feelings and those experiences and needing something to process it with and then still having a good relationship with my parents and trying to negotiate the impulses that I wanted needed to express and finding something to do that with in a healthy way 
that maintain the relationship that I have with my parents and the community and, and so on and so forth. So I got into Christian rock and punk and metal music. That was just kind of, that was the negotiation that I went through to... Who, who, who are some of those bands that you still like? actually like oh, the okay. christian rock band. oh like, man um <laughs> i still actually like living sacrifice like i'm still i can still listen to reborn and be like yeah all right all right i'm 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 here you yeah. know musically and then also the connection to your own yeah. your own journey yep yeah. yep absolutely i mean and then there were other bands into the the mid aughts you know that there were some really really great christian bands that uh that i would still still play I still do play. I mean, like uh, Me Without You or As Cities Burn or those kinds of bands. So I'm still still connected to that music in a whole bunch of ways. But So you, yeah, grew up kind of playing in bands, guitarist, right. lead, lead vocalist in these kind of yeah, yeah. Christian metal scene, rock scene. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't usually the lead vocalist. I was the okay. lead guitarist and I wrote the songs. Singing has only come about as I've gotten older and, yeah. and figured out that, okay, I'm not really a good vocalist. I can do this one kind of like punk thing, and that's that's really about all I got. So so I'm very limited in that regard, uh, but I'm old enough to figure out that that's okay. You don't have to be able to do everything, and I shouldn't try it. <laughs> but I didn't really want to play in church. That was always the thing for me. Was that like I had absolutely no desire to play church music as a teenager, or even as a you know early twenties adult, if you can call yeah. people that age. But they, I mean. Legally adult. Legally. <laughs> um, but I remember playing electric guitar for a while, and then our piano player at church, who was the de facto worship leader, but because she was a woman, she couldn't be the worship leader, so she was the so, piano yeah. player. Um, and But she did all the work. Uh, and, you know, asking me to play electric guitar in the church service. And I, at, at first I really resisted because I didn't want to be – somebody else's like weapon i didn't want to be the catalyst for the worship wars or, yeah. or whatever it was going to be and it, again i'm i'm putting those words back into what i was feeling yeah. at the time i had no language to say that yeah. um but i didn't want to be that person right i didn't want to make that trouble be the guitarist that ticks everyone else off that's that, exactly yeah. right i didn't want to do that um but I, you know eventually i relented and played electric guitar in the church the, the the formerly mennonite church that i grew up in that left the mennonite central committee in the early 80s because they had gotten the mennonites had gotten too liberal okay. <laughs> too, you know so to give so you the they frame of responded like, towards more conservatism even yeah. more yeah. so than yeah. the mennonites already, right yeah, so yeah. making a really yeah. strong move that way yeah um yeah, so that was that was how I started out, and then I went to college, you know, as most eighteen-year-olds do. Yeah. Went to a college that I thought aligned with my conservative evangelical values, and I would have said fundamentalist values at the time. I was yeah. very much claiming that as an identity, and I went to that school and realized that those people did not mean the same thing that I meant. <laughs> <laughs> so so I made it for one and a half semesters and I dropped out halfway through my second semester and I started the first punk band that I was in like that I was like all right we're gonna I'm, I'm gonna do that instead that's that, that which the whole I punk I mean I I'm not super familiar with the punk genre but my understanding is it is kind of a push against everything like musically yeah. culturally ideologically it is like right 
it, it, let's it's, respond against or let's let's it's incredibly express. oppositional music yeah right? that's a great way to say it yeah, yeah it, it's def- i mean in a sense it is the height of apophatic meaning the the definition of something by what it isn't punk is apophatic all the way across the yeah. board it's like i'm not that 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 so what about christian punk yeah how, how, what 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 is christian i know this is, yeah this isn't the point of our conversation but i'm curious like right. christian punk how you know where it's in one sense, like proclaiming orthodoxy, proclaiming the message of the gospel, who right. Jesus is, but also, what do you think? Maybe in those that season, or even in your own life, like if you're a Christian punk artist, what are you kind of raging against? What yeah, are you, what are you pushing against? Well, so for me, it was really simple. I was raging against both the uh, perceived evil in the world, and I mean, I know you can't see this on <laughs> as listeners. <laughs> You're making quotes. My air quotes here. <laughs> air quotes. Uh, the world, the evil of the world, but also against the perceived hypocrisy of the you know conservative evangelical tradition that I was a part of, and, and so I was pushing against both what I would say as mainline evangelicalism or mainline conservatism or yeah. mainline fundamentalism yeah. or whatever, yeah. and whatever this uh, you know amorphous blob that's out there somewhere known as the world was. So those are the two kind of pieces that I was pushing against and trying to make some sort of claim in the middle about faith and following Jesus and these kinds of things without without succumbing to these kinds of, as I would have said at the time, these pitfalls or these snares of fame or wealth or success or fill in the blank. Yeah. So so Christian punk to me just made a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, not to get too in the weeds with the academic here, but there is throughout the history of evangelicalism a value that I have named, in, not in this book, but in a different book, uh, as the value of dissent, that evangelicalism kind of by definition is always defined as what it's against. Mm-hmm. I, you know, in the first place, it was against modernism, against the, you know, the perceived overreach of science. It's, it was against these kinds of things. Um, and so for me, that, that makes a ton of sense as punk, right? So punk Christian makes so much sense if your base value is dissent. You're always dissenting from something so you can totally be punk now then again eventually you end up having to be punk against punk and there's nothing more punk than essentially saying i'm not i'm not a punk there's there is no (laughs) punk that's the punkest thing you can say uh and and so but at the same sense there's also um a possibility i'll call it although i will say it's more of a probability that eventually there's nothing more christian than to say i'm not a christian which is deeply offensive right Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. so we do run into these kinds of I'll just say epistemological or, you know, intellectual yeah. roadblocks yeah. where eventually your your deeply held ideologies kind of crash in on themselves and yeah. you can't sustain them anymore. Yeah. Let's let's jump forward a few years. You from a Christian punk <laughs> artist to getting a PhD yeah. in church music. Is there right. anything more punk than doing a PhD? <laughs> not in worship, not in theolo- theology. I could see someone maybe philosophy, but church, church music. music. Yeah, exactly. What? Why? <laughs> what happened? What happened, Nate? Well, I mean, I feel like with the definition I just gave, it should make perfect sense. Yeah, that's that true. Okay. Uh, but no, 
so it, it was a long process, and I, I don't want to bore anybody with these stories, but I, I spent a year touring with a music ministry based out of Wilmer, Minnesota, and I did like 300 shows that year. Like It was a very, very busy. We were on you know, several continents all around the world and, and uh, the U.S. and Canada, and had a number of experiences that really, really challenged my, uh, I will say, North American religious right-leaning politics, yeah. where I, I saw people who were actually affected by these kinds of policies that I supported, and not in a good way. And I just kind of went, oh, interesting. You know, it's 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 like, oh, it was like we were sharing yesterday, and this might be this might be a controversial topic, but I'll, I'll break in, I'll bring it up and you can yeah, edit it yeah, up if you want. No. But, but it's like the students who we had here who were really, you know, blase about COVID and the vaccines and they just kind of like, ah, whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's not going to get me. And then they got back to campus and talked to their friends who had, who's like their mom had died or they'd lost their grandma. Yeah. And it was all of a sudden, like it hit them and they were like, Oh, Geez, we've got to like yeah, we need this to do is something. serious. We need you to respond. Just, yeah, yeah exactly. we can't just say it doesn't exist exactly. anymore. We we have to take consideration of yeah. some sort. Yeah. So you so when you're confronted with the reality of somebody else's uh, <laughs> life, there yeah. somebody else's experience, somebody else's body, then you you do have to make some sort of response. Mm-hmm. I think we should anyway. This is where I'm getting into the ethics portion. Yeah. I'm jump I'm yeah. jumping no, the gun great. here. Please. So my response to these experiences. Uh, oh, also I should just mention that I was a I was in Honduras in 2009 leading one of these teams for this music ministry during the coup that ousted Celaya, and we had to we, you know we fled the country and we ended up hang, like hiding out in the mountains in a That's camp punk. and I think the, I, oh yeah I use, super punk <laughs> um, and so it's intense so I you know definitely acquired some PTSD through that and I mean I'm I'm just being vulnerable yeah. I've, I've been treated for that so that's yeah. that's something that's it's yeah. out there yeah. um, but came back and realized that my attitude towards education had been very much shaped by an anti-intellectual, mm. know-nothing kind of political environment. And that was something that I, I, like, I just <laughs> realized, all right, that was a mistake on my part. I actually should have been paying attention to these things. Like That information was out there. I could have known. Yeah. Um, but I just decided that I wasn't going to, that that was, that, that was too much work. So I went back to school after, so I'd already dropped out again. Uh, so I'd been in college a couple of times at this point and I went back, finished my bachelor's degree and then enrolled in Fuller Seminary's, well, it was the MDiv program because my grades weren't good enough to get into the MA program, <laughs> which would, there's, there's something about, I don't know, like pastors aren't supposed to be smart. I, I, I'm not sure that I'm on board with this, but anyway, that was what I could do at the time. Uh, and then I went and met people and I started asking questions and I was talking to my professors and I started doing well in my classes. I got my grades up to a point where I was able to transfer into the MA program. And it was when I made that sort of transfer into a more academic track and and more rigorous, I suppose, educational model that I started really thinking about the ethics of music and, and specifically the ethics of music from the lens of being a Christian. So what are Christian ethics of music? And I was speaking with my advisor who, I guess, not technically my advisor, but mentor, Todd Johnson at, uh, at, uh, Fuller. 
And Todd said, you know, well, yeah, I think that this is something you could actually pursue. And, and, and I said, well, do you know where I should look? Like, where's a PhD program that I could study musical ethics in a theological frame? And Todd kind of smirked and, and said, well, you might want to look at Baylor in their church music program. And I went, church music? What on earth is this? And and Todd explained what, what the program actually was, that it was this kind of uh, interdisciplinary program that worked at the intersection of anthropology and theology in the frame of music, worship, like what happens in a church's religious community through their singing. And... So I thought, well, that sounds really good. And then Todd told me about Monique Ingalls, who had, at the time was teaching at Cambridge, but then had gotten hired to go to Baylor as, as like an advised PhD students. And so I contacted Monique and then she apparently, I, just, I fooled her enough to think that I would be a reasonably good candidate for the PhD program. And then they, they accepted me. And then I moved my family from LA to <laughs> Waco, Texas. And my wife still hasn't forgiven me. No, just kidding. She's, no, my wife's... <laughs> My wife is amazing, and, awesome. and uh, she has indeed forgiven me, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, not just for moving her to Waco, but for all kinds of things. <laughs> and so the, the the broad sense, that's, that's yeah, great, great to hear this story of, like, how, yeah, how, what was maybe in your, your context almost an anti-intellectual Christian culture to, at Fuller and Baylor, maybe see a different... yeah version of what Christianity and what a Christian professor or being a professor Christianly could could right. look could look like. And I so, like the way you just yeah. said that too because because at this point in my life I I'm, I mean I absolutely consider myself a Christian but I'm I'm not at all enamored with this idea that we have to have the qualifier Christian on anything mm-hmm. like I mean e- even when I was in the Christian punk music world, Everybody was saying things like, what's a Christian punk? I mean, what's a Christian vegetable? What's a Christian grocery store? What's a Christian, you know, it's that you do the thing and that the manner in which you do that thing is what makes it Christian or not. Which I I think connects with ethics, right? Exactly right. Like, can you unpack, again, if if there's undergrad students or kind of pastors, worship leaders who haven't had the opportunity to study with you at (laughs) Fuller or with me at Regent or something, like what what is kind of just broadly what's christian ethics yeah i mean that's a great question really <laughs> that's the, the a dissertation uh, yeah right, right. yeah I did, not like i wrote a dissertation <laughs> on this um the uh the general gist of it is simply ethics being at its most basic level and there's a lot of quibbling about this but i'm going to start with really broad brushstrokes on its most basic level ethics is just about what is good what is a good thing to do and how do i determine that so it's being and doing good and the criteria by which you can determine what good, and here's the air quotes again, is. So that's the real broad sense of ethics. And I think if you're, if you're listening to this and you're following, your immediate question should be, well, okay, what kind of standards do I have for good? How do I qualify that? Because that is a hopelessly broad definition. There's no way you could possibly ever have any true sense of good in this frame I just have given you. So Christian becomes an important modifier. And again, here's the, here's that conundrum we were just discussing about putting a label Christian on anything, uh, including ethics. But in this case, it is helpful because it provides limits. It provides a framework and a cohesive-ish system within which to 
do that negotiating about what good could be and yeah. what I should or could do and what I shouldn't yeah. <laughs> or couldn't. And, and where do. do you where? What's your source for for that? And again, right. All Christians would say scripture, right? But there's, yeah, other ways of knowing as as Christians that or our our cultural reading of scripture, our inability that's to right. read the original culture, like right. original cultures, and so that's why even probably you and I have sitting here disagreements yeah, on right. some of these major ethical areas, right? But still can can put it under the broad concept of Christian ethics, part of it, which is. We've studied it, yeah. Christian, right. We've studied Christian institutions with Christian theologians, right. but also like, yeah, I guess for for your for your book itself, you're looking at this kind of idea of ethics as it relates to music, mm-hmm. and so your your title is music for others. What do you mean by that? <laughs> what the heck's going on there? What Nate? is that even about? Like, well, I'll give you the, the the history of the title that will help frame what I I'm, yeah. think I mean by it is I got the title from Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm. or Bonhoeffer when he wrote kind of against Sartre. Uh, well, what Sartre was about to be doing, right? Because Bonhoeffer is publishing before Sartre, but uh, Bonhoeffer wrote about jesus as the man for others and in the you know the different german translation or translations from german that we have of his unfinished ethics one of the most compelling is this idea of being for others because he he wrote his dissertation or sorry his habilitation thesis called act and being and so he takes this idea of being and what heidegger then develops into dasein i'm not going to get too far down this route hole i promise no it's helpful but he he takes that idea of being and says that to be a Christian is to be for others, which is to orient your posture, your attitudes, your actions, to be on behalf of somebody else, and that that's the core of Christian ethics. And so I take that idea as has been really formative and formational for me, that to be a Christian in in, in an ethical way is to be and act on behalf of somebody who's not you. Right. And this is very much what the Bible says. I mean, I think just I don't think there's really any argument about whether or not the Bible says to <laughs> do to others as you want yeah. them to have to do, yeah. do to you, what you do to the least of these you do to me. I mean, all of these kinds of things, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain and all of these kinds but of things. But some of the core of our understanding, again, particularly in the U.S., and I, I won't even just say evangelicals, but yeah. many American Christians is the individual. Yeah. And and thinking about. Just me, that, me, end me. Of me and God. Right. Am, am I good with me and God? And if I hurt someone else, it's not so much about restoring relationship with them. It's telling God, I'm sorry. Hey, I'm sorry. I, I said this to my wife or kids sure. or said this about another a, another group of people. Or, right. Like, and that's the problem. I mean, that that's where ethics for Christians becomes really important. And we've lost a lot of that in this country. I don't know if we ever had it. I mean, I would think we did. I, I know lots of people who certainly do have it and have had it. So it's not like it's lost wholesale or whole cloth. But I believe it's very important for us to remind ourselves continually of that fundamental claim of Christianity, which is we are not our own and we are not for ourselves. We are for others. And that part is really hard because uh, I like me. <laughs> I like, I like I, I'm, I'm loving this podcast because I get to talk about me, you know, like... <laughs> 
<laughs> so there's no narcissism here at all. No. Um, that, but that that's being for others is the central part of it. And so what is music for others, right? Mm. So music is a, is a way of being. And I make this argument in the book that music is a way of being in relationship and that actually at its core, music is relationship and relational. So first of all, just thinking blandly and scientifically, music is a relational series of sounds. Like you put one note with another note, you put this tempo and you put in this volume and you do all of these things, but they all relate to each other. All of these aspects of musicking or making music relate to each other and that's what makes it music. Otherwise, it's just... I don't know. Notes sound. on a page. It's yeah, just yeah, something, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, but that's yeah. also the the ontology or the state of being or the fundamental or inescapable reality of being a human is to be in relationship. And to make music is to embody that relational ontology. I'm going back to that big word, uh, that on that relational state of being. Because every time you make music, you're performing with somebody or you are performing with the memory of somebody. There is always something and somebody else who's involved in your imagination or your memory or your feelings even um, that that is driving music. And all people, I think, all, at least all musicians say, the best music is when I get to play with somebody else. Totally. This is what we love to do. You play with someone, and then that's real music. Otherwise, it feels like maybe you're just practicing or something. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's it, it makes me think of like solos in my church growing up. You'd have a track... You know, because I don't know if I don't know if your Mennonite church did this, but my siblings of God, like either right before the message or over the offertory, like have someone sing a solo. Sure. And I guess for me, I always struggled because we had this amazing band, like great people who could easily learn any of these kind of Christian pop or kind of worship songs, but instead they pop in a cassette tape and. This auntie, grandma, usually yeah. <laughs> would sing special music. Yeah, and right. again, this is not to, to yeah, to, to say that's inappropriate make, or wrong or to even make fun, kind of fun make fun. But also, what as I sat there as a saxophonist, keyboard player, vocalist, thought, what would happen if she would have actually yeah. got together with the band and what could we have created? And yeah. then, then when they accidentally put the A flat version of the song, she was supposed to <laughs> sing an F like we would have been prepared. Right, like we, we would have nailed that. Out. And we wouldn't have to ask the sound for engineer to like flip the hey, tape can, over. Can you flip and... that over? Can you back that up? Man, we did, this, and... we did the same thing at our church as well. We didn't have a band, uh, yeah. the, but the, as a kid, always there was a special music number and it was always just a karaoke yeah, performance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and um, I think about that in so many ways. Uh, I, I, <laughs> let me try that again. I think about that from so many perspectives. One is that too is a way of being in relationship because you're singing to a recording that was made by somebody else, and the the relationship is very distant. And it's it's in many ways there's no way to ethically negotiate that, right? But you're also doing it in the presence of other people yeah. who's proximity is much greater and you are in relationship to them in a very immediate kind of way. And so your performance, to borrow from Marcel a little bit in this this kind of way, or Story and Ogle, Marcel Story and Ogle, and is 
is a negotiation of relationship. Yeah. It's a how can you do this in a way that is beneficial to the people who are listening to you. And part of that might actually be better suited or served by collaborating with those people to make that music. Yeah. And so there are there are layers of relational um, analysis we could do on this to say, okay, they, that was in relationship. Like that was a relational yeah. activity. It maybe wasn't the best kind of relational activity that was available to yeah. those congregations, mine included. Yeah. No, I mean, there are there is a, a, a beautiful part of that. It gives an opportunity within the context of a corporate gathering to have someone yeah. share their gifts and talents right. and to right. celebrate that in, in one another. And so it's, yeah, it's not just a tear down the whole idea of special music. Not at cassette, all cassette tape but for me in that moment there was a hunger a yearning like let's do this together yeah like, let's create something mus- musically together and so I guess in in some sense that's as I as I was reading your book and interacting thinking like how can we always have this concept of relationship wh- whether we're leading worship performing um writing a song, anything within the musicking categories, Mm -hmm. like how can we be thinking of the other? Like those who will listen, those who might might be challenged by what we sing, those who we might be challenged by what they bring in. And yeah, I just appreciate that that kind of renegotiation or helping me um, draw in that relational side in a a fresh way. Thank you. What I, what you were just saying reminded me of the other part of the title that I wanted to to touch on is that we in the West so often make music a fundamental part of our identity. And in so many ways we claim it for ourselves. Like this is my music or that's not my music or, or whatever that kind of conversation. And in so many ways we do that at our own peril. We do that with this sort of self-seeking, self-serving attitude often. Not always. I mean, I'm not saying that having music that you love and that's a part of your identity is wrong. That's not at all what I'm saying. But it that identity shouldn't be at the expense of somebody else's identity. Uh, and especially when we're talking about worship and music in church, that kind of selfishness can really be disastrous and destructive. And it's not just the selfishness that, uh, that you know, could easily be applied to a worship leader as if, oh, it's all about you, blah, 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 kind of thing, or all about me, I mean, rather. Uh, it's That's not the kind of selfishness that I'm talking about, even though that's a part of it. That, But the kind of selfishness I'm talking about is actually a lot more about this control factor, this, this whole, I got to be in charge. I have to make sure that this person does it my way and all of this. So it's also pastor's. And it's also congregants. It's this whole messy way of trying to control everybody else, which is kind of a fundamental human sin, right? This is yeah. this is at the bottom of a lot, maybe everything, right? <laughs> that might be the the manifestation of original sin, if such a thing yeah, is yeah, 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 operative yeah, in our yeah. lives, is this profound tendency to need to control other people. And we do that with music a lot in church. This is this is a major part of uh, well of just being a Christian in North America, and so the title is also working against that. It's also pushing against that you know control other people with music, control other people's music, vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's music for others yeah. on behalf of. Yeah. No, I, you've got my mind synapsing now in so many different ways, but just. In one sense, like music is a main 
identifier of cultures and yeah. subcultures. Oh, you yeah. were a part of that in the punk scene. Absolutely. I was in a little, for like three years, third wave ska scene. Yeah. And, and in one sense, like within local church communities, we want to encourage them to kind of What's in your kitchen? What are the musical tastes and gifts and experiences yes. Yes. in your own local context? But I guess how how could a church be a local church, a local congregation, a local community grow, draw, express their own musical identity, but also be opened up to other identities? Maybe that's guests that come in or friends or people across the street or yeah. people that maybe even at at war with with each literally <laughs> at war, war. yeah at actual war, war. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah is is because i guess some, as, as i read your book put some some of the the challenges as again as a worship leader as a practitioner mm-hmm. i was struggling with okay but i want our own sound i want mm-hmm. our own unique yes like unique expression but I also want to be hospitable if, right. whether it's people from other cultures, other backgrounds, um, I want to be welcoming to those, even with different ideologies, even though I still have my, my have own ide- your beliefs, d- d- too. beliefs <laughs> and I'm a part of a community that has beliefs, and we want to state those, express those, proclaim those, sing those, right. pray those. How do we do this, Nate? Oh. Well, Jeremy, <laughs> let me tell you. No, I I don't know, honestly. But I, I have two ideas about it. Yeah. Um, and there's kind of two concepts that interweave in this one. The first one is this concept of personality and identity that we want to be static. We we are really enamored with things like the Enneagram or you know Myers-Biggs personality profile or Gallup Strength Finders or you know yeah. whatever these these personality or identity things that are really popular, especially among Christians, right? Yeah. Well, the science behind that is that that's all not right. That's it's all wrong. Like it's not a, it's not that it's bad. Yeah. It's that it just isn't true. You're personality changes like you might have been in enneagram four when you were in high school but you're not an enneagram four now or an eight or you know whatever it is so i get real this is f- gonna have every other ch- christian podcaster oh. calling you emailing you oh i know and then watch you know, out Nate. They go watch right this space. go right ahead but there's <laughs> there's this uh, book that just got published by um a scientist that, whose name is totally escaped me right so now but fine. my wife my wife has read it and loved it and it was like i see i understand what you've been saying now Nate and and yeah. but it's called personality isn't permanent. It's because it isn't, uh, and identities aren't permanent. You grow, we we evolve, we are shaped. Uh, things change, people change. These are truisms, but they're also true of your personality or your identity. And I'm using the air quotes again. Yeah. And so we think about that in terms of music and finding your own sound for your community. The answer is yes, of course. And be sure that that never closes. Like, always keep looking for that. Always keep making more And more people are coming into this community. The community itself is being shaped. Right. And if we are allowing for, and I haven't really touched on this yet, but uh, just an inescapable component of there being and others, if there is other and other person and other something, is you have to accept that they are different. That's the other part of the con- the control mechanism, right? Is that I want them to be just like me. I have a script for how this person should be, and therefore, <laughs> you know, I'm going to write it or I'm going to write them into the script. And we have to let go of that part because we don't get to control other people. 
and we also have to acknowledge that they are fundamentally different and that that's a good thing. And so I'll use a musical analogy for this. A C is not G is not, yeah. you know, D. <laughs> yeah. uh, these are not the same pitches, but put together, they can make a song, a um, piece of music, but they, they have to have those different components. And so difference is a fundamental necessity of relationship, of music making, of community, and of human life. Now, this is the second concept, is that once you acknowledge that, okay, identity, musical culture is not permanent, it changes and evolves, that difference is a fundamental, critical, inescapable, necessary component of this, then we have to acknowledge the agency of others and the, and the agency that we bring and understand how much power we ha are able to exercise in this community and how much power are we not able to exercise and how do we exercise that in a relationally healthy way and in a relational healthy exercise of power is leaving space for other people to decide that that's not really what they want to be doing yeah. and then not making them do it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know it, which is a weird i, I mean I, it sounds so obvious but then it's really hard to do in practice yeah i mean as i as i hear you sharing on this I, like the formative dimension of Christian worship comes to mind. Like you're talking about yeah. personalities shifting. And in some sense, worship, liturgy, music, relationships have the ability to help form virtue, form love, form understanding, form, um, yeah. yeah, fresh relational connections, even in, in, in super practical ways. Right. And I guess... In, in my tradition, worship was always, particularly worship music, was always understood as expression. Like, mm -hmm. let's go for it. Let's lift your hands. Right. Let's shout. And I right. love that. I, I'm connected with that. I think that is a normal expression sure. of, of most of us when we hear something we like. Yeah. We, we move. We, we groove and, and want, want the ability for leaders, musicians, um, people within the congregation to express that. Hmm. And then I think from, from some of my other traditions, like friends in my other traditions, those that I've worked with, very word-centered, Baptist, like it's – it's it's about proclaiming, like proclaim, like not expressing, but like getting getting the scriptures right, getting the doctrine right, yep. uh, making sure every song lyric, well, that might feel too metaphorical, so let's let's systematize that That's to be right. sure. Yep. Or let's ask if we can change this lyric for this really popular song because <laughs> right. it may or may not resonate, <laughs> even though it's a, even though it's a metaphor and right. it, it's an art form. Anyways, and again, I'm, I've devoted my whole life to wrestling with songs and lyrics and theology yeah. so this is very important to me but I think probably just a few years ago where as I got more connected with liturgical traditions um yeah connected with this idea of formation mm -hmm. in Christian worship and again those who are in Anglican churches Lutheran Roman Catholic like that's key to their understanding of, of what worship is and it's actually happening when we sing in a Mennonite church in yep. Minnesota or Assembly of God church in Indiana yep. we just aren't naming that right. and aren't recognizing that we are being formed by what we do. Right. Like what we say is important. Expressing artistically is important, but also like we are being formed and our character is mm -hmm. being formed. As, as I read this, you know, there's a number of things that you bring up around character formation. Why, why in your view is, is kind of naming that highlighting character formation connected with Christian music as as a thing, as yeah. something important? Well, that's a great question. I think that it's also helpful in uh, answering 
the other question about what's Christian ethics. So yeah, with, yeah, yeah. within this discipline or this this academic world of study, one of the more, uh, I would say, popular and influential ways of theorizing about Christian uh, ethics is this idea of Christian character formation. And it has a, a long, there's a, there's a long history. I don't need to bore uh, our listeners with that. But Christian ethics, especially in liturgical studies and liturgical circles, revolve around this idea of narrative virtue ethics and narr- narr- narrative character formation ethics, which um, in an overly simplified way, essentially argue that you become a good person by doing Christian liturgical things, by going to church and living yourself into the stories that you are encountering in worship. So the story of the gospel, the story of Christian history, right? Like salvation history, creation, fall, you know, all of these recreation, yeah, redemption, Mm -hmm. recreation. You're encountering this, these stories is what shapes your character. This is in this, in this model. And this is, I think in many ways, very true. This, I think that there are so many ways to argue this and to sort of demonstrate that, yes, of course, we are, we, we are shaped and evolve and our personalities and characters and cultures change based on the things that we do and the stories we tell and the way we make meaning off of those stories and the way we make meaning off of those doings. Um, and so this Christian ethics is this idea of going to church and being a part of the worshiping community is how you become a good person. This, this is the, the simplistic overly yeah, simplified yeah. thrust of yeah. the argument. And I actually agree and also have to challenge that because I think that it is a true statement that you do become shaped by the worshiping activities that you do, yeah. that you engage. But that doesn't say anything about the goodness of those activities or about the goodness of that community. So there's no ethics beyond that you should do you should go to church and you should sing there. Yeah, right. Right worship, getting worship right, equal in that model maybe as very simplistic equals right Christianity or right ethics. That's or exactly like, right. Well, it's kind of one for one. And, yeah. and and that is the way that that model gets worked out, and and it gets worked out in a number of different um, different books in that kind of way, and also a lot of I mean in practice this is a lot of how it works out. So if we can only focus on one thing, we're going to focus on that one thing, which is right worship or right belief like this that doing that right because then everything else will proceed from there and and again nobody actually thinks that it's a it's a perfect uh trickle-down economic theory at this point that's not i don't think anybody actually believes that we all understand that there's more that happens after it but the first thing is get that worship orthodoxy right and then everything goes on after that (laughs) (laughs) and there's the big inhale the 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 anti-sci the but that's not how life works. And that's the, that's the problem I think. And that's the problem with formation ethics for, because it, it comes, I think I say this in the book, it comes perilously close to confusing formation for conformity Mm -hmm. because you start to, you start to lose the possibility of difference or rather the celebration of difference and the ability to have relationship because you become so much the same. You can't relate to yourself. There is no self. That was a nice, uh, a nice rip. Or what, how did Joshua Buston say this? Were you part of this conversation, I Jeremy? Can't remember. Uh, that the self is a. Oh, 
the, like the self is just a story you try to tell yourself to cover up for something that hurts you. Like this is mm-hmm. that's the the easiest mm-hmm. translation. Mm-hmm. It was Josh said it way <laughs> more way better than I said it, but. But you can't really be in relationship with yourself because you are yourself. <laughs> this is just how it works. Um, other than you may imagine a self that covers up for a wound or for a rupture in your integrity. And then you have a self to cover that. Yeah, that's Lacan. I know I'm, I'm going totally Lacan here. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. But, well, well, I don't really subscribe to a fully Lacanian theory. This, but you're, but this you're, is you're this helping sort of... us kind of reimagine or maybe expand. Thanks, thanks for def- pulling me back in that, track that, here. No, I got expand myself that way definition. And as, as you were sharing, you know, Jamie Smith, Robert Weber come to mind yep. about getting worship right, restoring ourselves in yes. in the liturgy. And then, and then, and then everything else will get better, like, right? Did I use that right? Vis a vis, yeah, yeah, you did. I think <laughs> we we're we're good Christians. Then we're good Christians, yeah. you know, and, and, and good in the world, and good to each other. And even Jamie James K. Smith like notes and uses the Godfather as an example, where they're they're praying the liturgy, they're at baptism, they're I mean, like these rich, robust, doctrinally like um, foundational within Christianity as they're baptizing. Um, Who's it? Corleone's like new baby, the new baby and the then new literally baby. like it's it's juxtaposed to like machine guns mowing down all their right. their, their enemies. enemies. Yep. And so again, Jamie makes this because to, to nuance his own his own work, like to show that like it isn't a one equals one. Like right. if, if you get worship right, it doesn't necessarily mean um, you're going to get Christian ethics right. Exactly. I, I kind of appreciate you you kind of drawing those together. And I guess where, where, where it hits music in, in, in your work is that you say things like this, like even, this is a quote, sure. even when congregational music sounds good, churches do music badly. Mm. So we're, we're not only talking about doctrinal pedagogy and intellectual formation, but even musically, all these things could be going good. Right. Could be right. Yep. Um, could yep. resonate with the great tradition, could resonate with scripture. Yes. But, what how how can these churches still be doing things badly how can i even maybe in my own Church leadership be doing, be this, doing bad. this bad what do you what do you mean yeah, here what yeah. are you what are you encouraging or trying to nuance well first of all i think and um i'm pretty sure <laughs> i hope i didn't make this mistake when i wrote the book <laughs> but i'm pretty sure that that for, that sentence comes out of a the perception exists that even when churches yeah, do music, that's helpful. That's make music helpful. sound. So I'm I was addressing a perception that exists that yeah. church music is a like nobody likes church music. Yeah, like <laughs> got you. you know, th- so that was I may perception. be I may be drawing this out in in a way, but like yeah, you're you're you build this kind of case about doctrinal pedagogy, mm-hmm. intellectual formation mm-hmm. may not be enough. Like. Is orthodox lyrics enough to have good, again, air quotes, yes. good theology? Yeah, good, right. Good practice or good, um, what else do you use? Ortho, what cardio, I... like drawing from Constance Cherry. Right. Her, her the, the syllogism yeah. that she she quotes, and it's not, I mean, like, she's citing somebody else, yep. but she's not yep. challenging it in the book. She, yep. It's incidental to what she's doing, so I'm not Absolutely. really trying yeah. to go after it's, Cherry it's her here. her point, that's, yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of incidental. Um, but the syllogism underwrites a lot of it, and that is that right, you know, right worship or right belief, orthodoxy, sorry, ortho, right, right beliefs in worship, orthodoxy influences or determines right actions, orthopraxis determines right affections or orthocardia. Yeah. 
And that's not actually how it works. Like, in, like this is part of what ethnography is really good at, is making you listen and pay attention to how something is actually working. And it turns out that it's a lot more rhizomatic than that, or rhizomatic meaning uh, non-linear. Yeah. It, it doesn't just proceed one from the other. They actually are all working there's together at all time. There's interconnectivity, it, interrelation. Yeah, it, it's exactly. It's literally relating, right? Relating, yes. And I use the example of a, of a human respiratory system. Your heart, liver, and lungs are all working together at the same time to get oxygen into the blood, to pump the blood to all the parts of the body, to clean the blood, and then to send it back again. And if one of those breaks down, it doesn't matter whether the other ones are working or not. The, the, the person dies, right? And if you take those, if you take those out of their symbiosis, well, then you don't have a body anymore. You just have a, you have a carcass. <laughs> you don't have a living body. And and the same is true for things like orthodoxy, orthopraxis, and orthocardia. They all have to happen at the same time. They all have to be firing in in you know, not even rapid succession, yeah. simultaneity. simultaneity. Yeah. yeah. And so that's that's the issue with say in, an intellectual model that proceeds syllogistically is that you lose the the simultaneity of real life. And so if if that's not happening simultaneously you could have amazing theology great great music but hatred for someone in the pew or someone on exactly. the other side of uh, yeah. the planet <laughs> yes uh, literally right? somebody and, else like hating an other and it could be even some of what you're doing re-entrenching or yep encouraging those values right Again, because the formation that's where still inter happens interconnected like yeah if i'm singing a a kind of me worship song about how much yeah. God loves me and right. I'm feeling this hatred towards someone, I could utilize that, which is a good theology. God loves me. Of course yeah. God loves me. Uh, yes. you know, like, this but, is great. But could be using that good orthodox belief actually to re, um, yeah, as, that's a good way of saying it, like as a, as a check that actually I'm okay. I, like yes, my, I'm I'm a good Christian. I've I've got good theology. I've in got my a good song, relationship with God. Even though I hate my brother. hatred, animosity. Right. And what does Jesus say about this? Right. What what is that story? You know, about leaving your gift at the yeah. altar if you realize there's hatred in your heart for yeah. your brother. Yeah. This, you know, I feel like yeah, I feel like there's that's, some scriptural yeah. evidence like, here that like that's not actually how this works. It doesn't need a lot of cultural exegesis. Literally, <laughs> no, like no. in the place of worship, if there's something wrong, stop worshiping. Yeah, like, go, fix go, go fix it. Go fix, fix the thing. Like go, like leave immediately and make it right with your brother. That's yeah. what that's what the Bible says. Yeah. I, you know, there's you don't need to exegete that much or <laughs> to set that up in any sort of cultural context. The, it turns out God cares about that weirdly. <laughs> one of one of one of the the key points in the book, and I'll I'll highlight this. The, you sure. write the mere act of of musical, or at least to me, one of the key mm -hmm. points: the mere act of musical participation in Christian worship, where the songs contain orthodox lyrics, tells us nothing about the goodness nor justice of the communities that form around these musical acts. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. What are you saying? I mean, this was one of those those quotes that. I, Wrote down, underlined, like, <laughs> and, and kind of it relates to what we're saying about you can have good theology, good yep. logos, good words, good words of a song, and even good good music to that song. Right. But that doesn't tell us about the justice in the community or what's being formed through these musical acts. Right. I, I mean, I think you just said it exactly. It, it doesn't, t it's no assurance. You can't just say that this is it. Like, there's a tendency in North American society 
to boil things down to singularities, to to misapply Occam's razor. And Occam's razor yeah. is a for those of you who are listening to this podcast, Occam's razor is the is the scholastic idea of cutting away the things that are unnecessary for um, an argument or an idea to to thrive or to succeed uh, or practice. Right. Get rid of the things that aren't like I don't really need to be doing this one thing all the time when I could just do just skip it. So that's Occam's razor. But misapplying Occam's razor is, is, is like trying to just boil it down to the one thing yeah. that matters. It turns out that everything matters. Yeah. Like that's that's the problem. It, it's This sounds like a hopeless yeah. thing to say, uh, but I think we will be way better off. And I, I will say we would be more like Christ if we can acknowledge that the relationship with your brother matters as much as the words you're singing in your songs. Well, it's, yeah, it's a relational theology. It's a re- relational anthropology. It's a, a understanding like we are holistic beings. Mm-hmm. Like we, we are complicated. Yeah. Mar- again, you mentioned Marcel. He's, I'm misusing his term here, but it's messy. It's like messy. Yeah. there's messiness <laughs> in church music in particular mm-hmm. and, and within the church. And I guess as I read that quote, it also, it reminded me of, of Paul's letter, first Corinthians, like, yeah. You guys have maybe one of the most slamming worship services around, like in terms of expression, an -hmm. individual expression. Um, But right in the midst of that, talking about tongues and prophecy and and miraculous gifts, um, which are happening in that community. Right. He throws in 1 Corinthians 13. Like (laughs) you can speak in like heavenly languages. Yeah. You can raise the dead, which yep. are again epic like, in my tradition. That's, like that's, that's it. That's anybody. Pentecostal. Like, whoo! Right. I mean, that's the, that's the yeah, epitome of it, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have love, it's nothing. It's worthless. Okay. It's, and I guess you, 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 you don't draw so much from Corinthians, but you frame a little of this study around Matthew twenty-two, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I, I, I was challenged by this quote, like care oriented. This is. Nate, yeah. care-oriented towards restorative justice in music is a response to Jesus's interpretation of the greatest commandment. What you you did ethnographic research for this book too, mm-hmm. and kind of observing communities, talking to those communities. Right. Where was maybe evidence where some of this was happening and happening in a way that's like, wow, I'm I'm. I'm amazed, or I want to pause for a moment and say that is good. Yeah, <laughs> that is beautiful. Have you seen whether that's in oh, yeah. your own life or in other communities where you can look? I, I knew you. I think one of the things you talk about is a an Anglican church using hip hop and trying to wrestle oh, through, that wrestle yeah. through that a little bit right, and the right. different cultural dynamics. And yeah, like where where is there an example where it's like this is good? This is an example where it's yeah the music's good the theology's good and, and that's important but also where there is genuine care yeah well i mean the, the example i use in the book is that the incident i'll call it that happened at greater ebenezer while i was there where the the transient guy comes came into the sanctuary the service in the middle of it and and sort of uh, was was a threatening person um, and certainly mentally, um, certainly mentally unstable. The guy, after speaking for a little while, you just saw, oh, this 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 person, he might actually be here to kill us. <laughs> you know, like it was that kind of a situation. And the, the, all the stereotypes that every stereotype most people would have as they see yes. see this person walking in. Yes, um, who and wasn't then, a part of the community. Nope. nope. Um, but 
entered into the and community, you know, yeah, entered yeah. into the space. And uh, and then the way that Reggie, I name him Reggie in the book, that's not his real name, but the way the way that Reggie responded to the uh, that person by striking up a song that was very much a welcoming song to like in terms of the lyrics, but also a very it was done at like double he he played way too fast and did it in this way that both welcomed him gave him something to say oh okay they heard me they're they're celebrating my presence here uh but also offered a sort of rallying point for the congregation to to sort of close not close ranks but to just sort of like yep we okay we're gonna deal with this guy we're gonna we're gonna be here and be present and we're okay yeah yeah and and it it worked like the guy just obviously figured it out he was okay and 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 he left without doing anything you know without really well he left his lemons apparently but like (laughs) as an offering well that's it you know i think he put him in the offering basket actually so um so so there was there was something about that. So that's one example yeah. of seeing restorative justice, right? This wasn't, and I, I framed this against another, I didn't, I didn't have the guts to really, really call this out because I felt like doing so was going to be disingenuous to one of the other congregations that I studied, but a different congregation had an armed security guard in their, in their narthex <laughs> and patrolling yeah. the, the grounds. Yeah. Um, and if that guy had come into that church, it probably would have ended very, very differently. And, probably with somebody getting killed I, this reminds me of yeah something very formative of uh, my one of my youth pastors actually hired a friend to dress up kind of in that sort of thing to come into our youth group and create a stir and it's i don't know there's so many dynamics to that, but it was memorable to me sure it was memorable and then yeah essentially brought in kind of passages in james other in the new testament about if someone's different than you or coming in from yeah the kind of rich poor thing dynamic that was happening a lot in the first century is is the rich and the poor would worship together right like and it was yeah challenging it was shocking and that was what again it's a youth pastor rhetoric everything on a wednesday (laughs) night needs to be shocking and then you eat a ton of pizza and uh, but but to comfort but, to assuage your yes. your emotional trauma that you just you know <laughs> inflicted you just, on your that you just your, had your kids but oh, you just had yeah but but I at the same time like that preaching approach allowed me to engage like recognize like this really happens I think so many church traditions it's hard to to recognize yeah the one either it's an overproduced service that's only led by certain people on a stage right or it's high church liturgy again only led by certain, certain people, people on, stage, on a stage right or it's a you know kind of chaotic everybody does yeah. everything at the same time and, the, yeah. and that's also off-putting yeah. you know uh even though it is hospitable in yeah. a certain kind of way and so i i guess i this example i just appreciate because it's 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 simple there wasn't a need for a degree, a new course, reading another book, nope. but to acknowledge, yeah, the this person here. and this person's here in our community. Yep. And to do it musically yeah. is, yeah. is yeah. profound yeah. in in very many ways. And, of course, Ebenezer is a black congregation. There's a really rich history of music in black worship and also just in black activism as being a peaceful tool of essentially um distilling or not distilling <laughs> dissipating violence or or yeah. you know yeah. redirecting that and yeah. and i think that 
you know, Reggie had been deeply formed by that community and by that practice. And so his first response was just to respond with a song that in his intuitive mind was appropriate. Yeah, help diffuse, but also help welcome. Like At the same time, simulta- right? Yeah. Like you can't do that with words. Yeah, usually. Yeah, well, maybe yeah. you can, but I can't do that with words, right? <laughs> a great poet, a rapper, like maybe. Maybe, yeah. maybe right? Yeah. But, um, but and, and the thing about it too is that Reggie didn't even know he didn't remember what song he played or anything. Like I asked him a couple of weeks later and I, I, you know, I said, well, what made you think of that song? He's like, I, I wish I knew. I have no idea. I don't even remember what song I played. You know, it's like, I remember the guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I think that that also does talk about the formation aspects of this. This, this also cycles back into that. I kind of wanted to um, pivot. It's maybe not the right pivot, but to go back yeah. to the question you asked yeah. about the, why, why is the perception of, churches doing bad music yeah um yeah. why that because yeah. i think that this story starts to point at something that's important in answering that question and that is that most churches don't really think through what music is and how music is and so on and so forth um there's just a real fundamental misunderstanding or just a lack of willingness to understand how music functions or how music musics like I, yeah. I run out of you know adjectives <laughs> here or adverbs rather uh, at this point, but a lack of understanding of music really does inform and in many ways sort of enable a lot of destructive practices in congregations because we don't give account of how much relationships matter in music and how much music is inherently relational. We think about it, or if we do think about it in relational terms, we think about it as a relationship with God as this music enables me to relate to God. I have an experience, a transcendent experience or encounter with God or God's spirit is outpoured in this place. We have these kinds of ways of doing relational thinking about music. We don't think about how that is also always at the same time working on our relationships with each other. And we have an opportunity in those spaces to do relational work that's restorative towards justice. Because justice doesn't go away. I don't think that God has abandoned standards. <laughs> like, I'm not arguing for a God that doesn't care about whether or not you do good things or bad things. I'm actually arguing the complete opposite, but that God's care about our doing good is way more about our ability to love and care for each other and others. Like, the, the, the proximate and the distant other which again, going all the way back, requires there being difference. They ha- <laughs> they're not you. <laughs> you still have to care for them. There's, there's this long thread of justice, and I and I push back against retributive justice theories. I don't, like I don't see that actually in what God is saying about Himself in the Bible. Uh, that's that's not that's not how I read Scripture. Now you can read Scripture that way. That's just not how I do it. So I want I want a theory of justice that restores people to relationship with each other and and to relationship with God, yeah. not one that clobbers and starts wars. Yeah. That's the. Yeah. And I know I'm an idealist. I know this is hopelessly naive. I, I get but I get all of that, but I I'm just owning I'm owning my <laughs> my I, own dysfunction. Here. I think though, as you paint a yeah you paint a picture of of hope of what music and worship. Could, could could be do, right it doesn't potential. have to sound like yeah, anything the, like this is yeah. this would be a really beautiful community yeah. to be a part of yeah and i think you're also what i really appreciate you're highlighting what is happening whether we are aware of it or not right. like this is a powerful 
weapon. It's a powerful yep. tool. Yep. Um, how are we using that again beyond musically kind of doctrine again, which are both really important in, right. in Christian worship music, right? But also in in terms of how that's forming relationships with mm-hmm. with God, with those in our community, and also with those outside our community. Yeah, Nate, it's a treat to hang out with you. You're My, le- pleasure. You're a legend. My pleasure. Let's, yeah, you too. Let's yeah. do it again. <laughs> let's, let's do it, do it again. again. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thanks for listening today, and a special thanks to the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship for their support of this podcast.